The following content is explicit. It's Friday, June 8th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So we found out that Scott Pruitt, he lived in a Washington, D.C. condo for $50 a night, which is nice. He got it from lobbyists. He Airbnb'd it. Airbnb'd it from them. And also when he was out of town, he didn't have to pay the 50 bucks, but you know, his clothes got to stay there. Found out that uh, Scott Pruitt would only fly first class because he was concerned about security threats, which of course only show up in coach, obviously. We found out Scott Pruitt spent $43,000 on a super secret phone booth. We're now learning that Scott Pruitt asked an EPA aide to set up an interview to help get his wife a Chick-fil-A franchise, his wife Marilyn, going with the Chick-fil-A. We found out that he had a staffer try to procure a used mattress from a Trump hotel room. It's uh, not a kinky thing we don't understand it to be, at least he just liked that pillow top. We found out that EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt had his staff drive him to multiple Ritz-Carlton hotels in search of a particular lotion they sell, according to people who are in his security detail. It puts the lotion on the used mattress. It rubs the lotion all the way or else it gets no Chick-fil-A. We found out that uh, the EPA under Scott Pruitt Paid $1,560 for 12 fountain pens. All right. He's just, that one's dumb. Because, you know, like a regular box of 24 pens, that sells for 20 bucks. So all you have to do is buy five of those boxes. So instead of 1560 for 12 pens, which works out to $130 a pen, you just lard the denominator up and you can get it down to less than $15 a pen. But maybe I got my thinking all wrong. You know, scandals usually rely on the one outrageous item to capture our imagination, the $435 hammer that the Navy bought, the $640 toilet seat, even with private businessmen, they were going to jail anyway, but we all get outraged when Tycho's Dennis Kozlowski spends $6,000 on a shower curtain. There's always that one item that lodges in the brain, that egregious item. And that egregious item, I think politicians or people who might look to avoid scandal by means other than not engaging in the scandalous, maybe they would say to themselves, well, I just have to not have that one uh, headline item. Like a politician would say, what I need to do is studiously avoid a gaffe. But that thinking, that is the pre-Trump thinking. Trump blew away all gaffe avoidance strategy by simply saying lies on average six and a half times a day. I didn't pull that statistic out of nowhere. That is his, his acknowledged lies and misstatements averaging six and a half times a day so far and commit so many gaffes so often that they don't count as gaffes. They just count as sentences. So maybe that's what Scott Pruitt is after because he knows that one mattress or one pen or a group of 12 fountain pens, that could sink him. So if he doubles down or triples down or, or Google plexes down, then we'll never be able to nail him. Nothing will lodge in our head. It will just be a never ending stream of excess. 
Pens? Pens seem bad? Okay, how about a mattress? Uh, processing that narrative? Okay, how about some lotion? What's up next? I'm sure he's going to ask senior staffers to fly to Branson, Missouri to tape Yaakov Shmirnov's show and play it back for him on an iPhone or maybe a Samsung Galaxy. No, forget that. Get the cast of One Day at a Time to act it out for him in EPA headquarters. Schneider is dead? It doesn't matter. It all adds to the narrative. Or maybe the EPA will cultivate a band of Panamanian night monkeys and have EPA staffers train them to give shiatsu massage. Or he'll get tickets to every Darius Rucker and Lady Antebellum concert on the current tour. But staffers will be asked to refer to Darius as Hootie. And when one explains actually he wasn't Hootie and the backup band wasn't the Blowfish, that was just the whole name of the band, that guy will be busted down to mattress duty. That should keep them off the stench of the pens and the phone booth and the lotion and the mattress. And this will allow Scott Pruitt to keep doing the Lord's work of rolling back emission standards and counting as unendangered any species with gills, feathers, fur, feet, or eyes. On the show today, he is a humorist. He is a craftsman. We learn all these things in our interview with a guy who normally just goes by the very apt title of comedian, Tom Papa. Comedian Tom Papa is a man with his hands in many a pot. He has his uh, Come to Papa podcast, Popcast. He's out with a new book, Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas. Also, he is a man who did a live comedy special in Cleveland while wearing a brown suit. Was this pandering to a Cleveland audience or just a reflection of his searing and red hot personality? I will ask him now. Hello, Tom. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So um, it's not surprising, having heard your comedy, it's not surprising that you would talk about your family. But I'm halfway through Mm -hmm. the book when it hits me. Your name, Tom Papa is basically a synonym and uh, a direct translation of male father. Like yes. Tom, Tom Cat, Papa. Yeah, yeah. Papa. You were destined, destined to be a family man. <laughs> I know. It really is kind of bizarre. I do kind of feel that way. Like I, Even like starting stand-up, I was like, I'm going to be cool. I'm like, no, no one in stand-up, especially when you're starting, like has kids. Yeah. You know, everyone they have drug problems. I'm like, I <laughs> Those are their like, kids. Their kids are the Ludes <laughs> yeah. and, the, and the Bennies. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, no, the momentum just pulled me completely in that direction. Were you ever – I so I'm a fan of your comedy and it is not uh, Sam Kinison, let's say. Right. right. Right? Yeah. It's well observed and I would, uh, I would guess that it's mostly about things like craftsmanship and the observation about life. But in the beginning, were you a rebel? Were you a renegade? No. I was a bad comedian in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so I had some jokes. That was your re- rebelliousness. Yeah. And I had – yeah, exactly. It was thrust upon <laughs> me at late shows at like at the comic strip in New York where you had to survive a set at one o'clock in the morning yeah. after filthy filthy acts and I you had to survive so I had like a my big closing joke was about uh, a ropey nipple <laughs> and I don't even remember all the details but I remember that phrase and I was like how does a nipple get and ropey even, and even because uh, it was long I don't remember oh, I see, how I see. <laughs> and it was something about being on the subway I don't know and uh but I literally I could feel even at that time when I would do those kind of jokes the audience would look at me like eh, it's not you <laughs> 
<laughs> because they, can, they, they know who you are when you come on stage. Yes. They really do. And this was the age. I mean, when you started, I heard you on uh, WTF. You started in 93. Yeah. So the biggest comics were guys like Kinnison or, you know, those screaming comics and a lot of, uh, yeah. like, sexual aggression in your face. Big time. Yeah. There was no, everything, everyone was just, you know, sexually rude. And, and even, and then, so it filtered down. Even those were the big guys. And then. It was just the influence around town where was that, like, you know, club version of that. Right. So I would come strolling in, and at first I thought, maybe I have to change and be like them. Yeah. And the biggest change, the biggest benefit, I think, to being a performer, at a true performer to, to myself, was not to watch anybody. Mm-hmm. I couldn't watch Dave Attell before I was about to go on because it would just mess with my head. I, so I would just stay out of the club, stay upstairs at the comedy cellar till they came and got me and said, he, he just got off and then go down. So, and that gave me such freedom. So you would like a tell. I mean, everyone Love is a, a, right, a, a, great at what worship, he does. Worship. But if you saw him right beforehand, well, is it like the thing where if you talk to a person for too long with an accent, you wind up taking on their accent? <laughs> a little like his bit. his act leaches into yours a in little a way bit. that's uncomfortable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a tell has that power to the point where there's even even now there's like you could see six young comics all doing a tell sure he just has that cadence and that thing but even more than that it was the attitude and the darkness you watch him and you know his essence and it's a guy that clearly lives alone <laughs> in, a sh- in, a, in a shamble place. In the, and it's, I, I don't live that way. <laughs> so I heard you on Marin Show talk about your relationship with Seinfeld. And I know you had one. I didn't realize, first of all, I didn't realize that you're kind of mismatched in era. He's mm. 12 years or so. He was an established star when you were starting out. Oh, yeah. His yeah. show was a, right. a, a, yeah, a hit. Did he influence, I know he influenced your work ethic, but what about the actual construction of jokes later later like when i would hang with him and really talk comedy with him then i realized i i am more of a writer than a guy that just that you know freestyles to find the joke everyone's writing but just how you're doing it and i like sitting down and writing i like sitting with a pen and pad and working it out and and bring it on stage and bring it back home and redo it and change a word and i like that but there i didn't see any influence there was nobody else around me that was a tell wasn't doing that it wasn't happening when he showed up and he told me that that's how he works yeah it was like oh okay finally once i found one successful guy that does it this way what like the most successful guy you would think yeah you would think that i understand that comedy is a little like being a pirate and there are no rules <laughs> yeah. and the hours are crazy but you would not just the fact of work ethic but the specific way of doing it you would think that maybe other people would work like that and yeah. i think i heard or i know that drew carey does a lot of work on the page uh-huh. and he'll do columns and he'll write here are i'm going to make a joke this way i'm going to make a joke and he'll compare two things right. you know basketball and and volkswagens uh-huh. and he'll just write a list of everyone and he'll find one thing that's in common and some how make a joke or that was one of the ways he made a joke yeah i love that stuff and i think it's just your mind i think you there are people that don't do that they just you know they do not have a written copy of their act but i do it that way and i it's funny when you say like it's surprising like well why wouldn't everybody do what he's doing some people does it it (laughs) does drive seinfeld crazy it drives him crazy he wants to just take people yeah he wants to teach so badly yeah so i took advantage of that thirst that he had and I would just hang around he was very famous when he when I was starting out so yeah. I wasn't watching the show 
I was trying to hustle spots. I wasn't. There's no DVR. Yeah. And there was no, you missed it, you missed it. Yeah. You, and if you weren't I, there a Thursday at nine, yeah, that's when I was you're hopefully out. out yeah. doing something. Yeah. I once did um, a story about comedy and neuroticism or mental illness yeah. or issues. And the uh, researcher found, could not find one comedian who had not been to therapy except for Seinfeld. Right. And the thesis wasn't that he was nor Every other comedian was like, well, he needs it. But, you know, <laughs> Seinfeld doesn't think he does and he's been yeah. successful. So I wonder what you what your experience has been. You definitely uh, question things, but I don't know if I'd call you neurotic. Have you been to no. therapy? Has that helped you? I've never gone to therapy You're the either. second comic then ever. <laughs> Think yeah, about that. I there know. are two comics who do it in this way, yeah. and neither one of you been to therapy. That's, yeah. I guess the only thing that uh, separates us is a huge hitch television show. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, no, and I About never... 30 Lamborghinis. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all the Porsches in the world. <laughs> yeah, he flies commercial. And uh, no, I, um, I, I don't go. I was raised by um, the head of our family was this Italian grandmother. Clem, who was just Clementine. Clementine. Nice. And it was that's just a, that's a head of the curve name, by the yeah. way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And she was just purely she had eight children of her own, twenty-one grandchildren, and just lived by this and her husband passed, and they had no money when my father was a kid. Zero, zero, zero. The most positive force in on the planet, this woman was just purely you can control the world with your mind be positive live your life don't bellyache just move forward just go just go just enjoy your life shake it off dust off all those kind of credos were just completely put into all of our heads my life is just as grief-filled as anybody else's (laughs) it is yeah i was completely a ball of confusion as a child i was sleepwalking for years I was wetting the bed as a child who should not have been at that point. Every I had four best friends, and they've all passed wow. from the time I was in eighth, ninth grade until just a couple of years ago. I have I have just as much of the weight of the world and the confusion and all that on me. But I never thought that sitting in a room with a stranger and just belly aching about it was going to do anything. I really like writing. I really love it. I love, you know, I do this. I took over the comedy for live from here. Yeah. The Prairie Home thing. And uh, I'm writing more now than I ever have before because I have to write this monologue every week for that show. And my eyes and ears are open in a way that they haven't been before. Like when I'm on a flight and someone's annoying next to me where before I would be like, this lady's awful. I listen in and I'm like, I'm going to turn this horrible person into something that I can use. This is a very long way of saying you don't have to kill yourself to come up with funny stuff. Yes. It's all around us. I wanted to ask you about, well, first of all, live from here. Uh Uh-huh. When you took over the writing of the show, it existed without your position filled, so it was post-Garrison. It was post-Garrison. It was still Prairie Home Companion. I took it over in September, and it it had existed for a year without Garrison. And they had sketches that were, they were trying to still do sketches, but there was nobody with a comedic mind. It's a musician-run show now. Yeah. Uh, Chris Thiele is sure. a genius. Guy plays a mean mandolin. And Doesn't mean he can write a great sketch. Right. He's not, he, his brain does not even think about, he, he can read them funny. Sure. And he's a great personality, but he's not thinking about that. And he was just floating out there in these literally 
like five minute long sketches where you know in the first 30 seconds this is a bomb. And he's just, the poor guy just had to float out there. So I had been doing Come to Papa, which was my podcast where I got uh, tired of interviewing people and started doing my own version of Prairie Home. Like, what would that be like in the hands of comedians was my idea. Mm-hmm. If, I, if it was just populated just with comedians just to get laughs, what would that show be like? Because Garrison created a world. He created this very special, unique thing. But he wasn't slamming for jokes all the time. He could be very funny. Yes. Um, but it, it wasn't his main and only objective. What is the difference between a, a super uh, solid joke or a series of jokes or monologue that works on that show versus in your own act? In your own act, you literally have no room for you, – you're not hanging out. You mm-hmm. don't you, – you, you don't, you're not telling a story. You're not hanging out. You're not – you know, there's – I've done it in my act where I'll tell longer form stuff, but even a longer form story in stand-up is still so much more joke-packed than it is in a sketch or a monologue on, on Live From Here. I, ca- I can allow myself, and the audience will allow yes. you, to take three, four paragraphs of just exposition, cool writing, but and then a joke. If you do that in a club, they're they're getting antsy. Well, I gotta say, compared to the pace of Garrison Keillor, you're still Henny Youngman on that show, <laughs> because good point. Just in terms of actual words per second, yes. the word ketchup, like it shouldn't take that long to say. I know we're both from the New York area, but I know biscuits, <laughs> ketchup and biscuits, <laughs> thirty seconds. I saw him in an interview say. That he was faster when he started, and uh-huh. that he realized the, the the quieter he got, and the more soft spoken he was, he could feel the audience leaning in. And it's true, On but the, holy cow! Yeah. An hour of that. <laughs> let's go. Let's move. I can't. I'm not built that way. I'm with you. Yeah. Tom Papa's new book is Your Dad Stole My Rake and Other Family Dilemmas. And he is on every week on uh, the thing that used to be Prairie Home Companion and is now decidedly not. The words are live from here. Tom, great to meet you. You too. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. This is an Antan twig, our name for a three-week period, not due to bad breath. You always hear that women are targeted and inundated on social media with sexist comments, and I don't have reason to doubt that. In fact, I have seen that. So for the past four weeks, and we've got one more coming out, we're doing these Upon Further Review podcasts, and episode four, the one that's up today, asks, what if Brandy Chastain had missed the goal, had missed her penalty kick in the 1999 Women's World Cup. Now, for some context, I don't know if you've ever listened to the gist, but I talk politics. Politics are, you know, closer to the bone to most people than, say, a almost 20-year-old soccer game. Most of the time, I'm consistent. Don't like that Trump guy. I don't think he's doing a good job. But you know what? This week, I said, Melania, she should be able to do whatever she wants. And I even kind of stood up for Rudy Giuliani a little bit. So what I'm saying is, you'd think people would get mad at me, and they do, but they don't get mad at me to the extent that we tried to do and successfully executed an Upon Further Review episode on the 1999 Women's World Cup. So the headline 
to the story is what if Brandy Chastain had missed her kick? And the responses we got that we didn't really ask for, but some of the responses we got on Twitter, Monty Clark wrote in to say, nothing would be different. No one cares, nor should they. Brian Rogers, who's at Vol Golf Dad, meaning he's from Tennessee and he golfs, when women's sports have equal TV ratings, equal fan attendance, and equal revenues, it's just a matter of economics, saying that that's, that's when we'll start to care. Mr. Wonder Who <laughs> writes, no one watches women's sports, no one really cares. And average American, whose handle is at real Trump fan, hard to figure that, says, sadly, you cannot have equality in sports without equality in skills. Men are faster and stronger. Their moves are more exciting to watch. More views mean more money. It's that simple. Well, thank you for explaining it to me. I'm sure that is what is going through LeBron James' head as he looks at his teammates versus Kevin Durant's teammates. You can't have equality in sports without equality in skills. Now, if you're going to lecture me or us about uh, no one watches women's sports, it's, I don't know, ironic that you would do so about the most watched soccer match in American history, men or women. That's the exact match we're talking about. And if you're going to make the point, well, if people go to women's games, then we'll care about women's games. When A, in the report, we very much explicitly talk about the chicken and egg dilemma of that assertion. But also, if you look at the just soccer, we're talking about the U.S. men's team and the U.S. women's team. If you take out the Copa America games, which uh, is an institution the women do not have, and Costa Ricans and Panamanians come into the United States to watch those games. If you just look at the men's national team and the friendlies they played in 2016 and the women's national team in soccer and the friendlies they played, the women's had more attendance. Just, just to point that out. The point is, I know... I know the title of that was phrased in the form of a question. What ifs are the conceit of the book upon further review? And I know that at real Trump fan and Volgolf dad could say, well, you asked. Eh, we really didn't. It's, you know, rhetorical question. We provide the answer. But that's okay. If you want to weigh in, maybe listen to the piece or, you know, think about the fact that you're talking about unexciting, unwatched women's sports, but this very sport we're talking about it was the most exciting, most watched women's sports. It makes me think this. Question I cannot answer. Is America more racist or sexist? I don't have an insight on that. But this is what I think. I think white Americans are much more concerned with appearing racist than male Americans are concerned with being sexist. All right, there's, of course, the debate, well, what is racist or even what is sexist? But whenever I weigh into issues of race on Twitter, I don't get deluged with claims that I would call racist, but casual sexism applied itself to this question really, really readily. So what I'm saying is this. I'm not saying women have it harder, black people have it harder, black women have it harder. That might be defensible. Not saying that. I'm saying there is a greater sensitivity to the charge of being anti-black than being anti-woman. That's, that's what I think. That's what I'm gleaning from the reaction we've got. You charge most Americans with being racist. Most, they would say, what? No, racist? How's it racist? What do you mean it's racist? Don't call me racist. You tell most guys, you know, you're being sexist. They would say, yeah, whatever. Or maybe, maybe people just hate soccer in America. Maybe people just like golf a lot. I personally am more comfortable with being seen as anti-golfist than anti-soccerist. I don't see myself as especially one or the other, but perhaps the uh, the pointed edge of the of the soccer spear 
the tippy top of the soccer spear would call me out for calling it soccer. And, and the golfers have no equivalent uh, dudgeon if I were to call it crooked stick ball and slacks, which is the alternative name for golf. Now, on to uh, listener mail. Mail, sure, missives. Jared Formanard, who I knew as Jared Foreman, then he married Liz Menard. Very, very forward thinking that Jared Formanard. He was commenting, friend of mine, commenting on Necco wafers. And he says that in camp, when it was time for canteen, the treat time, if a kid wasn't there for canteen, as a joke and without fail, we would order the poor missing victim two or three orders of Necco wafers. It was the only time anyone would ever order Necco wafers. And it had to be the reason that Necco wafers kept appearing on the canteen menu every year. Nobody would have ever ordered them voluntarily, which got me to thinking there must be an equivalent. Maybe the music of Air Supply occupies a similar place as as Necco wafers, and then it hit me. Necco wafers were the original Rick Rolling, at least in camp Echo Lark. Alex Miller writes in, because I was talking about the cover of the book, Hey Ladies, where the phrase is repeated eight times because there are eight ladies that the book writes about. But I noted it should only repeated or be listed seven times because you get a lady who walks in. She says, hey, ladies, to the other ladies, but she wouldn't say, hey, ladies, to herself. But Alex Miller says, no, should be 56 times because every lady of the eight says, hey, ladies, seven times. Alex Miller is wrong, and I'll tell you why. Just think about social interactions. There's a group of, say, seven people. You walk in. You say to the seven people, hey, ladies, what do those seven people say? They just say, hey, back. They don't say, hey, ladies. You, hey, ladies, them, but hey is the response. Nice try, Alex Miller. But, you know, I, I, was, I was pleased by the fact that you were engaged. Beyond Michael Sheldon, B-I-O-N, Beyond Michael Sheldon, writes into me to say that when I was talking about Lays, the portmanteau of lava haze, the, the killer substance from volcanoes in Hawaii, and I worried that it could step on the flowered garland that Hawaiians use as outreach, what they put over people's necks as soon as they come to the island. He pointed out, even worse than that, what about the verb to lays? People go to Hawaii to lays. And if it means they're going to Hawaii to get attacked by volcanic shards, that'll be bad for tourism. And now comes the time when I award the Antan Twigs Lobstar. I call it the Lobstar of the Antan Twig, passive voice. The runner-up Lobstar, Mark Krawitz, says that my explicit content warnings at the top of the show sounds as if I'm going to begin a poem. So he wrote a poem. The content that's explicit, I am warning you right now, though you may find illicit, your enjoyment I can vow. Here's the show without delaying. I hope your senses can relent. Just bear in mind what I'm saying. This show has explicit content. That was good. It's good for runner-up. But the real lobster of the Antan Twig is Johan Mercier. Probably got both of those pronunciations wrong. Johan writes and say, Mike, when you implied that Old Faithful was in Yosemite, I'm sure you meant that it was in Yellowstone. And in fact, I don't know if I meant, I probably meant Old Faithful was in Yosemite, but I should have meant it was in Yellowstone. I think later on I made a reference to Old Faithful being in Yellowstone because I was deluged with comments saying I got it wrong. But the reason that Johan or Johanna gets 
Singled out is she used the verb implied. I, I said it. I was wrong. But she soft pedals it. She made me take the criticism, go down a little bit easier. So thank you, Johan. You are the lobster of the Antantoic. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname once spent $275 on a single pen, but without it, the cattle tended to wander all about. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, scoured many different Airbnbs in the D.C. area to try to find a used Scott Pruitt mattress. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, landed a meeting with the head of Long John Silvers in an effort to get his wife a full refund on that hush puppy and fish combo meal. The gist, all of our episodes are available on Samsung Galaxies or as performed by the original cast of Small Wonder. Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thank you for listening.